And then as well, I'm going to ask you to grab your Bibles, your access to the scriptures, and, and we're going to start in the Gospel of Mark, in Mark chapter 10, and then we'll eventually find our way into Luke this morning. So we are in week two of a series that we started last week, which the, the title of the series is Undivided, Dealing with the Things that Keep Us from God. This whole series is on this thing called idols. And, and if you weren't here last week, I'll give you a quick little kind of backstory. So this came out of something that happened four months ago when uh, we were really leaning in and listening to the things that God was speaking to our church. Um, one, of, one of the Sunday mornings we leaned in and one of the things that was spoken to us was that, that God had given a picture that there was Asherah poles spread across our valley. Asherah poles are an Old Testament symbol of worship of idols and that God was bringing a move of his spirit like water that would wash away the idols in our life. But I, I remember even that morning I had vivid images of people hanging onto those poles and not wanting them to be washed away. And the Lord really highlighted to me, not any one particular person, but collectively, that underneath the surface, some of us have really been dealing with idols in our life for a very long time, and we don't even know it. And the way that that comes across is that, that every time we try to move forward in following Jesus, we have the best intentions, we move into something, but we always seem to hit some kind of, it feels like a dead end or a roadblock. It's almost as if, if Jesus is here, and we're over here, and every time we feel this leaning to lean into him as we move forward, we like run into something, and then we scratch our heads thinking, how come I can't seem to make any, get any traction or move forward? And it's because what's happened is something has gotten in the way, and we were here, last week we talked about kind of the big picture of idols, and knowing that idols steal our affection, our attention away from God, and many times, not always, but many times, idols are a good thing that become an ultimate thing. And so they take the place of God when they're supposed to be subject to God in our life. And so that's where we kind of get mixed up and confused. And so with, with that in mind this morning, this is where, as we walk through this series, last week was the easy week, just to warn you, because we were up here. We're talking generally about idols. But then the moment you start to name idols, that's when it gets uncomfortable in the room. Because now we're starting to get specific to what we may be dealing with or denying that we're dealing with in our life. And so this morning, we're going to talk about everybody's favorite topic when you come to church money, the key to having it all. And we, we think, okay, well, yeah, that's what we think. But money is a huge issue for all of us. Because this is the mentality, whether you know it or not, because the cult culture we live in, the context of our country is this. I need money to be happy. And when I get money, if I'm not happy, the answer is what? More money. And then when I get more money, and I'm still not happy, the answer is what? More money. That's the way that we live. That's the culture that we live in. That's what we're told, and that's what we begin to believe. And when that's what we believe, then what happens is that thing, money, which actually is a good thing, becomes an ultimate thing and becomes an idol in our life and pulls us away from God instead of drawing us to him. Now, I want to focus in on this this morning, and, and one of the ways that you know that you've kind of transitioned from money being something in your life to being something that's ultimate in your life is that you transitioned to this thing called greed, and greed is this, this unsatisfied need in our lives to have more. So we put it this way. So we've heard of the term covet. Covet means I look at something that I don't have and I think that I need it at all costs. Greed kind of works differently. Greed shows you what you have and then says to you, it's not enough. You need more. So that means every time you get more, you look at it, and it's still not enough. And so greed just kind of keeps pulling us away from God, thinking, I need more, I need more, and I need more. And that there's never an answer to it. Why? Because ultimately what happens is money, which represents happiness and possessions and everything that we have, becomes the ultimate goal of our life. It becomes an idol. And so this morning, what I, what I want to do is we're going to be in Mark, and then we'll be in Luke, because 
there's two very specific and unique stories about two individuals that encountered Jesus, and they encountered Jesus not knowing, but on the surface, they don't know, but deep down inside, they're encountering Jesus on the basis of their money. And their reactions and their encounters with Jesus actually end up in two different directions in their life, and there's so much we can learn from them. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to start in Mark chapter 10. I'm going to read a handful of verses, but here's what we're going to talk about. The first story, most, if you've been in church, if you haven't, you'll be playing catch-up, but, but you're probably familiar with this story. We, the guy that we're going to read about is we kind of give him a title. We call him the rich young ruler. It's a guy that we can tell from context, had some resource, had some money, and because of that, he encounters Jesus. But what you and I will see in the encounter that he has with Jesus is to understand one thing. He's been completely deceived by his money. And because of that, there's things that we can actually learn kind of on the negative side about what maybe we may be dealing with underneath the surface, that whether we know it or not, greed has become a part of our life. So let me start in verse 17, because there's three things I want to highlight. And the first thing is this about the deception of money, is that money makes us think it's not an issue in our lives. Greed is somebody else's problem. It's somebody else's issue. It's somebody else's deal. It's not my problem. I'm good this week. I get a free pass. I don't have to listen. But let's read this passage. So starting in verse 17, it says, As he was setting out, he was talking about Jesus, on his own journey, journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. In verse 20, and he said to him, teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. This is pretty, pretty important what's going on here. This guy has come to Jesus because he's feeling pretty good about himself. He's feeling pretty good about his morality, about the way he's kept the law. So he knows if he engages this rabbi and he asks the question, everybody wants to know, how do I get eternal life? He feels pretty confident in the response that he's going to get, and he's going to be able to check the boxes and make everybody think he's got it all together. So Jesus' initial response to him, he's feeling really good about himself. I can check all those boxes since when? Since I was a kid. But because he's wealthy, and obviously he must know that he thinks that Jesus knows he's wealthy, there's probably something in him that's thinking, oh good, I'm glad he didn't address my money. I'm safe. I got morality down. Money is not an issue. I don't have to deal with that. I'm going to deal with on a, purely on a moral basis, good and bad, black and white. I got that down, then I'm in. That's not the story. It doesn't end there. But I, I think it's important for you and I, and I to understand. The majority of us, when, we, when I said money, and we talk about a rich young ruler, you and I automatically default to that's somebody else. And the reason why we do that is because we always can find somebody else who has more money than we do. It doesn't matter how rich you are. You always find somebody who's more wealthy. But here's the, here's the sobering reality, the positive and the negative, of living in the country that we live in. When Jesus encountered this man 2,000 years ago and he addressed the issue of money in his life, guess who he was addressing? Us. He's addressing us. And this is how we know he's addressing us. Listen to the, some statistics. 95% of all Americans are considered middle class or higher compared to global standards. Catch that? 95% of us in this country are considered to be middle class, but most likely higher than middle class that compared to the rest of the world. Going on, only 5% of the U.S. would be considered low or lower income or poor. 5%. How about this? The poorest 5% of all Americans are richer than 68% of the world's population. What we think is abject poverty is not poverty at all compared to the rest of the world. 
71% of the world's population lives on less than $10 a day. Think, just think about that for a moment. So the strong majority of all of us would be classified as what? Rich. Even the poorest among us, according to the world, would still be rich. So who's Jesus talking to? Raise your hand. He's talking to me. You're like, stink. I didn't want that to happen. I thought I was out of here. Stink is a Greek word that means I don't, can't translate it in church. Anyway, <laughs> ask these questions about yourself, about money. Do I love it? You think, well, how do I love money? Think about this. Do I dream about what happiness I could have if I had more money? We mentioned last week, all of us, all of us have dreamt about what would happen if I won the lottery. All of my problems would go away, right? We've thought that because money somehow make, makes us happier. Question, ask this question, do I serve it? In other words, do I work to make it at all costs at the expense of other things in my life? Am I so driven by more money that I'm willing to sacrifice other things in my schedule to make sure that I'm doing what I can to make more money? Then there's a third question. Do I trust it? In other words, do I believe most of my problems would disappear if I had more of it? Yeah, we do. Anybody want to admit, you thought, if I just had a little more money, then this bill wouldn't be an issue anymore, and I could get a little breathing room, and I could make my mortgage, or I could go on that vacation that I wanted to go on, or I could, whatever it is, if I just had a little bit more, I'd be happier. See, then you and I know that we're, we're talking with, we're engaging in this story. We're, we're the rich young ruler. Jesus is speaking to us about the way that we handle or we view our money. So look at the next couple of verses, verse 21 and 22, because the second reality of the deception of money is that it makes us think that we need it to be happy. So as the man goes on, the story goes on in verse 21. It says, And Jesus looking at him, I love this part, he loved him, and in his love, this is what Jesus says to the man. You lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. Verse 22, Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. What did the man think? If I don't have money and possessions, I can't be happy. That's why he went away sad. Because you imagine, he'd think, I am passing the test with flying colors. I've got an A+, plus. I've got 100%, and then Jesus goes there. And he says, you lack one thing. You got morality down, you got the law down, but you still lack one thing. Money is your God, and unless you let go of the money, it will always be your God, and you will not be happy. And he goes away sad. Why? Because he's convinced that he has to have money to be happy. He has to have possessions. He has to have things. Otherwise, he can't be satisfied in life. Listen to Paul's experience in his own journey with Jesus and what he said about true happiness and contentment. He says in Philippians chapter 4, verses 12 and 13, he says, I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. And verse 13 this is so many people's life verse, but sorry, most of us pull it out of context. I can do all things through him who gives me strength. What is Paul talking about? He's not talking about the promotion at work. He's not talking about the vacation you want to go on. He's not talking about making more money. What is he talking about? Paul is talking about his own experience where there's moments where he's gone hungry. There's moments where he's been naked. There's no moment, more, moments where he's had plenty and plenty of food and plenty of resource. He's seen both extremes. But even in the midst of both extremes, he says, what's the secret, no matter what the context around me says, what's the secret of contentment? Is Jesus in me. It's giving me strength to be content, even if I don't have everything that the world says I have to have to be content. That's what Paul's secret was. That's what our secret is. And that makes so much sense because 
if, if your experience is similar to mine, but if you, you have to get outside the context of our country to experience this. Some of the happiest people I've ever met in my life are the most peop- people who are in the most poverty. How does that work? How does it work that people who have nothing are happier than me that has everything? It's just not supposed to work that way. I'm supposed to be happy because I, I live in America, and I, and I have more than most of the world. Those, wouldn't you agree with me? It's the opposite. Those of you who have gone on teams to Haiti, you all come back and you're like, how in the world can they be happy? Because they've all come to this understanding just like Paul. It doesn't matter how much money I have or don't have. I have Jesus. Probably the most profound worship experience I've ever had in my life did not come in this country. It came in abject poverty in a little village, a tiny village called Ogura, northern Uganda, in an AIDS clinic amongst a group of people who had no reason to be happy about anything. When our team arrived there, this group of people had gotten together. There were 40 pastors from all these different churches all over in these little villages who, a number of years ago, who would not talk to each other, but then the AIDS crisis hit Africa, and they realized they all had the same issue. They all had people in their villages dying of AIDS, and they couldn't offer them any help. So they all migrated to this little medical clinic where they all met each other, and they all realized it didn't matter what denomination or background they came from. They all realized they needed help, and they came together. Most of them barely can survive. Some of them live in a hut with no electricity. And then they show up, and so that's part of it. Then the other half of this group are kids with AIDS who some of them are most likely going to die. And we walk into the middle of a worship service, and that's the makeup in the room. Pastors living in poverty, struggling to make ends meet, can't help their people, combined with kids who have been diagnosed with AIDS, and half of them probably will die in the next year or two, apart from a miracle or the right medication. And we're in the middle of this, and I've never seen people cry out to Jesus more in my life. I've never seen people so happy and so joyous. And by the way, their worship team, there wasn't a guitar or a keyboard in sight. And they were playing instruments I've never seen in my life. But there was so much life in that room. There was so much joy. I remember talking to a 13-year-old girl after, and I don't know how she managed to even survive, but to be in a place where she's worshiping Jesus, literally she said, my parents both died from AIDS. I have AIDS, and I have three younger sisters, and now I'm responsible for them. And today, to survive, I dug up roots for them to eat. And she's here, there, she's worshiping Jesus. What I know my response would be, I'd be mad, mad at God. Why did you let this happen to me? Why, why are my parents gone? Why am I trying to dig up roots for my sisters to survive? But she's there, what, with joy. Why? Because she believes that if she has Jesus, she has everything she needs. Now am I saying that we all should go get on a plane? Well, maybe. Maybe we should get outside the context. Because so many times I think we miss out on the joy of what it is to know Jesus because we think that if we have money, then we have everything that we need. And then there's the third reality. The deception of money also means this. It makes us think that we can have it both ways. So going on, look at verse 23 and then to verse 27. It says, And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it would be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but with God for all things, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. What is Jesus saying? There's no way to get around it. Jesus is saying it is near impossible for someone with wealth to get into the kingdom of God. This is where it got quiet first service too. Just think about that for a moment. Really? 
And then if I live in America, I'm considered wealthy, and then Jesus said it's nearly impossible for me to get into the kingdom of God to go to heaven? Wait a second. This just flies in the face of everything I've been told about God's grace and mercy and Jesus' death on the cross. Wait a second. What is Jesus talking about? You know what he's talking about? Is that you and I have found a way to think that we can have it both ways. I can have all in this life, and I can have all the money and possessions that I can go after and I can make in this life, and I can have all the reward and the joys of eternity with Jesus. And you think, whoa, am I supposed to take a vow of poverty now? I'm supposed to get rid of everything? If God tells you to, sure. But I don't even think that's what Jesus is saying. He's saying one or the other. If you serve money, it'll be your God, and, and you'll get everything that you want in this world, but you'll get nothing in the next. But if you don't serve money and you serve Jesus, then you will forego this world for the next one. You can't have it both ways. That's what Jesus is using this ridiculous example. Is it possible for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God? Yeah, why? Because it's God. But I'll tell you one thing I've known in my life, because I'm a rich person just as much as you are, and I've seen people who would be considered wealthy. Rich people will enter the kingdom of God, but not as rich people, as generous ones. That's the difference. And we'll see it in the next story we're going to look at. But just think about that for a moment. Jesus said this in his words, pretty convicting words. He says, no one can serve two masters. This is Matthew 6, 24. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. You can't. One is going to win. At the end of the day, either God's going to win or money's going to win. Here's some questions to consider. Do you give only after you have covered all your wants and needs? In other words, do you give, and I'm not even talking about through the church, just in your life. Do you give out of generosity or do you give what you can afford? See, because we think is, let's run the numbers, let's look at the budget, let's see what's in the bank account, and then we come up with a number. What is that saying? Who, who's still driving that? Money's still driving that. Second question, when presented with more money, do we first think about what we could buy or what we could give? If thousands of dollars just happen to fall into your lap, what's the first thing that comes to your mind? Party, right? <laughs> Vacation, or maybe it's bills. Oh, I, I got to get my car fixed, or I'm behind on this, and I can get up to... Or do you think, why has God put this in, in my lap? Is there somebody else who has a greater need? Is there somebody else that I need to think about? The third question is, do you live in fear of losing everything? Here's the reality about, about greed, and here's the reality about money being idle. You don't have to have more money than the next person to have money as an idol. If money dominates your thinking because lack of, it's just as much of an idol as if you had a lot. If you have anxiety constantly about you're going to lose everything, so every single month you're, you're like holding your breath, can I make my bills, can I pay, money's still in charge. Because you're still making decisions based on how much or how little money you have, and so it's still an idol. Not based on what Paul said, I can be content no matter what I have. A lot or a little, it doesn't matter, I have Jesus. That's all that matters. So when you and I begin to think about those questions and begin to ponder, now we move on because I know it's quiet and there's good news. I know we got that's the bad news out of the way. Now flip over to Luke chapter 19, because here's a story of Jesus with another man who had resource and who had wealth, but this outcome is different than the first. Because what you and I are going to see in this story in Luke chapter 19, verses 1 through 10, is the story of a guy named Zacchaeus. The greatest tragedy of Zacchaeus's life is that he was a short guy. You know why? Because we all know Zacchaeus because of his stature, don't we? There's a little Sunday school song that used to sing, right, about that. And it's so sad. When you get to heaven, we get to heaven, you and I have to go apologize to Zacchaeus for making him 
notable because he was short. If that's all we know about Zacchaeus, we've missed the point of what his encounter with Jesus was like. So look at these, these verses. Let me read verses 1 through 10, and then we'll look at his encounter. So, so Jesus is speaking of Jesus. He entered uh, Jericho and was passing through, and behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich, which, by the way, is a huge understatement. He was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry, come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone to, the guest of a man, to be a guest of a man who was a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man did not come to seek and say, or to seek and to save what was lost, or the lost. So this is an amazing story, because there's a lot what we don't see, but what we do see is profound. Zacchaeus is a wealthy man. And to, for the Bible even to say he was rich, in our standards, is an understatement. This guy had an access to unlimited wealth because he was paid by the Roman government to extort money from the Jews. And they gave him the power to set the tax on how much he wanted to make. So his, the capacity for him to make money was unlimited. So he had more money than anybody else around. And he has this encounter with Jesus. And in the middle of this, we're going to focus in on verse 8. Zacchaeus confesses to you and I the antidote for greed. And it's in in three things that are highlighted in verse 8. The first is this. The antidote for greed, that need for more and more and more, is first of all this. Give justly. So in verse 8, the first part says, And Zacchaeus stood and said to to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half of my goods I give to who? The poor. Well, like you're like, that's good. We're supposed to give to the poor. No, no, you need to think about this for a moment. Zacchaeus is a penny-pinching swindler who counts every penny he gets because he's a tax collector and every penny means something to him. He has done a lot, obviously, because the word is used, he's a chief tax collector, which means somehow he's been better than others at what he does. And so he's very invested in his money. And so what he is saying to Jesus is, me, the penny-pinching consumed with money, know everything about how much money I have, I am going to now give that money to the poor. Who are the poor? They're the people who, maybe because of circumstance, find themselves lacking, but also, just like in our day is true for there, sometimes people find themselves in poverty because they've made bad decisions. They've been foolish. And now a guy who's managed to make a lot of money says to Jesus, I'm going to give... What does he say? Half of all my possessions to who? The people who might have made foolish decisions in their life. Where in the world does that come from? That's the dumbest financial decision I've ever heard. What happened? He encountered Jesus. We don't know what happens in this this time when they're in the house, but whatever happens, he's so in his encounter with Jesus that he thinks even up to half my wealth, if not more, I don't need it anymore. I'll give it away which is reckless. But what is he doing? He's giving justly. What does just mean? Just has to do with being what? Driven by 
Justice. What is justice? Equaling the scales. Well, only if that person's worthy. Only if that person has made good decisions can I. Otherwise, they're just going to lose it all. You don't see that in this. He doesn't say, I'm going to pick and choose the poor that I'm going to give to you. Only the ones that really have good financial potential. He's going to give to the poor, and the poor means what? I have need. So this is his encounter with Jesus, which is it's amazing. Because what's happened is Zacchaeus has so been encountered by Jesus that he realized his money doesn't matter anymore. The very thing that he thought was going to give him happiness, he just found somebody who will make him happier than his money, so he's ready to give it away whoever wants it. That's crazy. That's being financially promiscuous. Almost reckless. You you know what's amazing is there there are people in our world who have yet even encountered Jesus who have been wealthy according to our standards, and they've had the same reality, the same kind of truth come to them, even without Jesus, that they've made tons of money and realized, I'm not happy. There's a guy named Jonathan Starr, mid-30s, made millions and millions and millions of dollars as a hedge fund manager in New York. And he was living the life, the dream life that everybody in our country would say. I mean, the guy was worth more money than most of us will ever see in our lifetime. And after doing that, in his mid-30s, he realizes, I'm miserable. He goes, I have all the money in the world, but I have no meaning in my life. There's no meaning, there's no purpose, there's no significance. I'm just a wealthy man who does nothing. So through some circumstances, he ends up finding this little nation that's not even an official nation yet called Somaliland, which is this little offshoot of Somalia that isn't officially recognized yet. We all know about Somalia. And so he goes in there and realizes something as he visits this nation that one of the biggest struggles they face is they don't have a system of education that actually helps their people. So he starts a school. He takes all this money that he's made as a hedge fund runner, and he buys this huge piece of property, puts in this school that is state-of-the-art, and he starts bringing in students. This is about a decade or so ago. This is what's amazing. This school has become so effective in what it does that when the students graduate high school, they don't end up staying in Somaliland to go to school. You know where they end up at? Harvard, Yale, Ivy League schools. They are competing with some of the smartest students on the, in the globe who were born in privilege, but they were born in Somaliland. But Jonathan Starr said, I'm going to make a difference. And they all make a commitment when they come to the U.S. for education. Guess what? They don't stay here. They go back to Somaliland to be the future leaders of that nation. All because one rich guy woke up one morning and said, I'm miserable. Money hasn't made me happy. I have to find some significance. I'm praying that someday Jonathan Starr finds Jesus because then he'll realize not even the school in Somaliland will make him happy like Jesus will make him happy. But think about that for a moment, how that changes when we encounter jesus and realize he's all that we need then we can give what justly second thing look at continue on in verse eight give honestly so he goes on and it says zacchaeus says and if i have defrauded anyone of anything i restore it now just pause for a moment he's a tax collector he defrauds people every single day if i've defrauded no 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 zacchaeus not if when, which is you woke up and took a breath, you're going to defraud people today. That's what, that's what tax collectors did. So that's the, his way of life is to what? To be dishonest, to work angles, to extort money, to try to get as much money as possible so he can have more money for himself. So he can cut corners and do whatever he wants, and it's legal according to the Roman government, which is crazy. But suddenly, he's saying, if I've defrauded people, I'm going to make that right. I'm going to what? I'm going to give back honestly. I'm going to show integrity. I'm not going to cut corners. I'm not going to manipulate people. I'm not going to work the system for my benefit anymore. I'm actually going to be honest with the money that I have. 
am not going to defraud people. Now, none of us, I know, are tax collectors. I haven't, at least I don't think so. Some of you might work for the IRS, but you probably won't let that be known by anybody in the church, I'm sure. <laughs> but if you think about that for a moment, you and I are never going to probably be put in a place where we are legally allowed to extort money from people. But we're going to face decisions every single day. Will we honor our commitment of integrity with our finances and the way we treat other people? Because we're confronted with that all the time. Because there's so many times where we will somehow justify ourselves in cutting a corner, in letting something that somebody gave you, something that you weren't supposed to have, you got a bigger refund than you were supposed to get, or a bigger payment you're supposed to get, and you're like, oh, it doesn't really matter. That person, that company has tons of money. It won't really matter. Yes, it will. Because now what's happening is now your finances no longer are your finances. You know, we sang that song earlier about it's your breath in our lungs, it's his money in our bank account. So the way we make decisions about money directly has a connection to who Jesus is. I was on my way to church a number of years ago. It was when I was in college, so I literally had no money enough just to, to basically pay bills and pay my tuition and eat as cheap as I could. And so I was on my way to church one day. I was a part of a church plant. We were meeting in a school in a residential area, and I followed this guy into the neighborhood heading towards the school, and he had a, like a really nicely restored uh, uh, Volkswagen, a VW Bug, and it was really cool, and I was kind of, maybe I was distracted a little bit, but he pulled to the right like he was going to park, and he almost came to a stop, and so I just started to go straight past him. Well, I didn't realize he was just swinging really wide to turn into his driveway. And so as he came across in front of me, I clipped his rear bumper, and I'm like, oh, great. And so he pulls into his driveway, and he wasn't very happy with me. And so I said, hey, I'm so sorry. I said, listen, I said, I don't have enough money as it is. I don't need my insurance going up. I said, but I want to compensate you for whatever your loss is. So, so just you go get, a, get an estimate. You call me and just let me know, and I'll cover it. And he said, okay. And he goes, by the way, what are you doing in my neighborhood? I'm like, well, I'm going to church. He goes, oh, isn't that good? So obviously he wasn't very favorable towards people in the church. So he calls me back, and literally, I had about this amount of money in my bank account at the time, and I had a school tuition bill coming up. And so he says, because I looked at it, and there was like maybe a scratch on his bumper. I mean, really, it was minuscule. He goes, it's $300 worth of damage. I'm like, how is it $300? I saw it's a little scratch. You could buff it up. In fact, you're, you restored that. You probably have like five bumpers in your backyard, right? He goes, no, it's, it's legitimately, it's 300 bucks. And I remember I got off the phone with him, and I was so mad. And I said, God, this is not fair. He said, it's not fair. And I said, in fact, I'm thinking, going through my mind, all the reasons why I should not give this guy $300. Because he's just going to pocket the money. He's going to buff out the little scrape on his bumper, and he's going to call it good, because he's going to make money off of me. And I'm a college student, and I'm going to Bible college, and I have all these reasons why I shouldn't give $300. And then Jesus says, what did you say you were going to do? Well, I said I was going to give, pay him for whatever I do to compensate for his, his loss. And he, so why don't you do it? And I'm like, ah. And then finally, in Jesus' very calm and very forceful way, basically pretty much says, shut up and write a check. <laughs> Seriously, I remember sitting in my apartment at the dining room table, just arguing with God. I had my checkbook open, and I said, fine. And so I wrote a check for $300. Literally almost emptied my bank account and said, okay, God, I don't know how I'm going to pay for food and my tuition. And guess what? I paid for food and my tuition, even though I had $300 less. Because God reminded me also, remember what you said to him of why you were in his neighborhood? You were going to church. If you don't do what you said you're going to do, what is he going to think of you? He's going to think just like every other Christian he's ever encountered. And I remember that, and it just settled in. I'm like, okay, God, I'm going to trust you, and I'm not going to trust my bank account. Where is it there are opportunities for you 
It's not, it's not that you're going to be some huge money launderer or you're going to make millions off of defrauding people, but there's the things every day that you and I are confronted with. It's the item that gets stuck in your basket that you don't pay for when you leave the store. It's a clerk that, that undercharges you for things, even if it's five bucks or a buck. Where are you going to say, okay, you know what? I am not going to let people be defrauded by my, on my behalf, so I'm going to make sure that I live honestly. Why? Because the money's not in control. Jesus is in control of my life. So the, the, the final reality or the antidote for greed that we learn from Zacchaeus is to give generously. The last phrase in verse 8, Zacchaeus says this, I restore it fourfold. Now this is earth shattering because we are like, oh, that's really good. You know, he's going to afford What does that mean? So the law required, had a requirement. When you defrauded somebody, the law required if you were caught that you had to pay back the same amount that you defrauded plus 20%. So that means that, let's just take, let's say that Zacchaeus had defrauded somebody 100 bucks. So to make it right, he had to pay what? $120. But he makes a statement that goes way beyond the requirement to a point of generosity and says, I will pay back four times what I stole from people. Just think about this for a moment. We can't do the math because we don't know, but, but just we can estimate. I mean, think about this. He's defrauded every person that he's ever encountered as a tax collector. And now he's saying to Jesus, if I've defrauded people, I'm going to pay them back four times what I ripped off from them. That's crazy. That's generosity. Generosity doesn't give what's required. Generosity gives over and above in a way that's almost reckless. See, we're, I think sometimes we're, and I'm not talking about giving to the church, by the way. We're not going to pass the offering baskets again, so don't think this is a bait and switch. Someone did recommend that, by the way. Said, no, this is, this is about being generous in our lives. To give in a way that doesn't say, can I afford it? Or what's the minimum requirement? That's why, even when we talk about tithing, it's like, hey, I give my 10%, great. That's where they started in the New Testament. They didn't end there. They just started there. But it's the, the reality of what does that look like? It, it's, it's in the big things and it's in the little things. It's down to, for example, when you go out to lunch later today or to dinner and you're sitting in a restaurant and you're not happy with the terrible service that you're getting, and maybe you start at 15, maybe you're generous and you go, I usually, I, I, I usually tip 20%, but man, you're not happy with what's going on in the restaurant. And your food gets there and it's late and it doesn't taste good and it's cold and you're thinking, you know, the, 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 tick o- the tipometer's going, dang, 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 it's going down, right? And you're like, you're getting 10% today. What are you saying to that server? My convenience of eating out is more important than your livelihood. What are you saying? That if I get bad service, I should still tip 15%? No, I think you should tip, tip more. I want you to think about this for a moment. It's really interesting. The whole concept of tipping is one of the areas. We're putting a price tag on somebody's livelihood, and we're in control of that. You don't know what's going on in that server's life. You don't know what kind of day they're having. You don't know if they, they just went through a trauma with their family or they're getting a divorce or they can't make ends meet or if it's a single parent and they're trying to put food on the table and the only thing they can do is work two jobs and one of them is they're not great at being a server but it was the job that was available and you don't like the service and you value them five or ten percent less than what you should. What if the bad service you get next time, you should tip 30 percent? What would that say? I'll tell you what it would say. I've never been a server but I've talked to servers. That would mean the world to them. Because don't, don't you, by the way, servers know when they're doing a bad job usually. Not always, but usually they have an idea. Sometimes they do it on purpose. But other times they just, maybe they're having a bad day. Think about that. 
Now, this is not just about tipping. This is just about realizing I am not going to give what's expected. I'm going to give with abandon. That's what, that's what generosity is. I don't, I don't think, how is this going to adversely affect me? How is it going to affect my bank, bank account or my retirement or whatever? I'm going to have to give. I want to give because, by the way, Jesus gave recklessly to us. Paul talked about this in 2 Corinthians 8. He said that you know the goodness of God in Jesus, that though he was what? Rich for your sake, he became in other words, he stepped out of the riches of heaven and the status of what it meant to be God. He didn't relinquish being God, but he didn't use his position for his own benefit. He leveraged it for ours. That's crazy. So if Jesus has done that for us, then we should do it for other people. And let me, let me close with, with this one last story. There's a, a church in inner city Austin, Texas. It's got a really interesting name. The name of the church is Barefoot Church. That's what it's called. And the pastor of that church is a guy named Brandon Hatfield. And, and Brandon tells a story in his book, Barefoot Church, about the transformation that God brought about in his life and the way he viewed his resources and his money. This guy is a pastor. And at the time, he was pastoring what everyone would say is a very successful church. Large, lots of resource, lots of money, uh, lots of notoriety, notoriety in the city he was in. And so... One day after Easter services, and he's telling the story, they ran six Easter services. So he finishes, he and his wife, they finished six Easter services. He preached six times in a few days. He says, well, I just want to go to church with my wife. We want to go somewhere where nobody knows us, kind of off the, off the grid. And so they find this little inner city church in Austin to go to church that night. It's a Sunday night. They go walking in, and he said, this usually doesn't happen to me. He said, but we're in the middle of worship, and I'm just leaning in, and worship is really good. He goes, it's not because the band was great or anything. He goes, I just really felt a connection with Jesus. And he said, then I get this vision. He said, suddenly I'm outside the church, walking down that street that the church is on. And as I'm walking, there's a homeless man sitting there on the side of the street. And as I walk by him, the homeless man says to me, hey, give me your shoes. He said, and he, he, goes, in the, he goes, in this kind of vision that I'm seeing, he goes, I turn to the homeless guy, and he says, they're not going to fit you. And in the vision, the homeless man says back to him, he goes, oh, they'll fit. And that was the end of it. He goes right back into worship. And he's thinking, what in the world was that? That was bizarre. And so his worship ends, and then the, they had a guest speaker that night. And the guest speaker got up, and he was talking about the church he had been in that morning, on Easter Sunday morning. And that church had done a special thing to kind of care for the homeless in the community. And they realized that one of the biggest needs for the homeless in Austin was they needed new shoes because their primary mode of transportation was what? Walking. And so what they did that Sunday morning is that people came and they donated shoes. And so they had this big shoe drive and they brought in all these shoes for the homeless. And so that night they hadn't planned for that in that church. But the speaker said this. He said, I feel like the Lord's really moving on me to ask, make a very strange request. And that is that God is challenging some of you right now before you leave tonight, you're going to leave your shoes here and give them to the homeless. I think, well, that's pretty, pretty neat. But here's the, here's the reality. So Brandon Hatmaker and his wife are sitting in this service, and they both are wearing cowboy boots. They recently bought each other as a Christmas present, and they are the top-end cowboy boots. If you're from Texas, you know you don't mess with cowboy boots, right? And this is what he's thinking. Are you kidding me, God? I have a hundred other pairs of shoes that are worth like 30 or 40 bucks, and these are the best shoes I have. These are like my pride and joy. And you, I wear these on this night. And he's having this dialogue and this debate. And God says, of course I knew what shoes you were going to wear tonight. So he's 
course, now he's putting this together with this vision he's had of this homeless man. And so at the end of the service, they end with communion. You have to walk up to the altar. And this is what he said. Those of you that God's moving on your heart, when you come receive communion, you leave your shoes and then you can go. So Brandon and his wife take off their cowboy boots. And just, he wouldn't wear any socks. Strange thing, in April, it's usually not this cold in Austin. He said it was in the low 30s. He leaves his boots at the altar and he walks out the door down the street barefoot. And he walks away from his megachurch and started this little church called Barefoot Church. And now that's what the kind of the tagline is, but now they're called Austin New Church. And I was just telling people, you know what they do for their Easter service? They don't do it in a building. They go downtown. They rent a vacant lot that's populated by homeless people. They put on a service, and then they just feed the homeless all day long. That's all they do. Why? Because God told them to do that. He didn't give away his 30 or 40 or 50 pair of beater shoes. He gave away his cowboy boots, which was the best shoes he owned because God wanted him to. And when you think about that in your life, think about Hear me, because one of the dangers when we walk away from this is like, oh, I got to give more and I got to work harder. No, 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 no. If you're feeling uncomfortable, it's because something inside of you is asking this question. Is money an idol? Because I've had very wealthy people tell me, you know, when I read The Rich Young Ruler, I think what God's saying to me is not that I really have to do that, but he just wants to know, would I be willing to? No. The only way God knows if you're willing to is if you do it. That's the only way. God's not asking for, well, you had good intentions. You know, it was in your heart. But I never, I'm not going to ask you, as long as it's in your heart. No, no, because if it's in your heart, guess what? He will ask you to do it. And it may not be leaving your cowboy boots in an altar, but it'll be something else that God pushes in, and you're like, okay, it's not my money, it's his. I'll give it away, and I'll trust him for it. So I'm going to ask you, if we just close your eyes, because I want us just to, to, again, focus not up front here, but on what Jesus is saying to you. And there's a couple things I really feel are important to highlight this morning. So last week, I mentioned that one of the couple things that we need to be aware of when we walk through this journey and this, this series together, because this isn't just a series that I feel like I, I got to come up with a series. This was something God embedded four months ago that I was looking forward to, that this, this is coming because we got to deal with these things in our life. But I know when God begins to push in on idols, he begins to push in on things that we really hang on to. We go to, we go to like the extremes. One of the extremes is, is we deal with pride. And that is when, when we get pushed in on and, and that, that idol gets named in our life, our pride rises up in us and we start to deflect. Like the rich young ruler, just kind of deflecting like, yeah, I got this down. I got the morality down, but don't don't go here. Don't don't go don't go where my money is. And so we we're like, no, that's not my problem. That's somebody else's problem. That's why even this morning you've already thought of the ten people that you know that are wealthier than you and how this message is for them and not for you. That that pride is inspired by the enemy who wants to keep you stuck where you're at. Or maybe you you go to the other extreme. And that is that you, you look at this thing called money and you, if you're, you're honest, but you think, I am stuck. I live in anxiety constantly about not having enough or when I don't have enough, am I going to be able to pay my bills or when I have enough, am I going to have more? And all, it's this, this cycle you live in, it just dominates and it weighs down on you and you feel like there's no hope, you can't even breathe. And so you want to side, you're in denial, the other side, you are crushed. Jesus comes to us today and he confronts our pride 
and he lifts our anxiety. And the way that that happens is that each one of us has to come to a place in our life where we finally, not just admit, but we finally realize and believe that at the end of the day, if all I have is Jesus, then I have more than enough for my life. That is the core. That's why Jesus said to Zacchaeus, when Zacchaeus said, listen, I'm going to give back what I've stolen. I'm going to pay back more than I owe. And then what did Jesus say? He said, today, salvation comes to this household. Why would Jesus say that over money? Because Zacchaeus was saying to Jesus, at the end of the day, if I'm broke and I'm poor, but I have you, I have all that I need. Nothing was more important in Zacchaeus' life than Jesus. And so today, Jesus comes and asks that question, what is it in your life, the good thing that's become the ultimate thing, the thing that's grabbed your heart and your affection, your intention and your anxiety that's pulled you away? Jesus has come to deal with that today. And for today, we're dealing with money, possessions that we think will lead to happiness. And so Jesus comes today, and he doesn't come with a bulldozer, and he doesn't come like a bull, but he comes through the power of his spirit to speak to our hearts that says to you and I, beyond our pride, beyond our anxiety, let it go. Let it go. The things, in fact, I feel this for some of you, what God is saying to you, I'm not going to prescribe specifically what you're supposed to do, but God is saying this, if you would just trust me, if you would just live generously, if you would stop sacrificing all to make more money, if you would just take a deep breath and rest in my provision, I will give you the desires of your heart. But you don't have those now because you want to get those on your own and you haven't trusted me. And then for some, maybe you're dealing with an idol, but what you're dealing with is you never realized in your life that who you really need is Jesus. You may have gotten a religious experience. You may have even got church attendance, but you haven't met Jesus yet. You haven't met Jesus like Zacchaeus met Jesus, where he, he changed everything about your life. Today, you can do that. If that's you, then right now, Jesus is present. Although you can't see him, he is present through his spirit who works beyond the physical into your heart and your mind and your soul. And you know he's talking to you right now. And he's drawing and he's saying, listen, you have to leave everything behind, including your sin and your brokenness that has shown you you can't be happy on your own. Jesus comes and says, I will take your brokenness and your sin and your rebellion and every point of failure in your life. And when you give that over to him, you confess that to him. He washes it all away because he died on the cross for your sin and all your brokenness to wash it away so that you could live, so that you could be free. And right now where you're at, if you know that's what's happening, guess what? He hears your words. He even hears your thoughts. Begin to tell him that today you want to surrender everything to him your money, your family, your career, your life, because you realize if everything else falls away, you still have Jesus. And Jesus is all you need to be content, to be satisfied, to be happy. So I'm going to pray in a moment, and then we're going to conclude. But I want you to know this. What Jesus wants us to know today, and I know it's hard to believe this, but Jesus wants to know whatever you're walking, wants you to know whatever you're walking through, whatever you're experiencing, whatever you're carrying with you, in the deepest, darkest, 
hardest, most painful moment of your life when everything falls away, when you lose your job, when you lose your family, when you don't have the resources you need, when you lose your health, when you lose everything that we believe we need to be happy, Jesus says to you, I am here. That's why Paul, in the midst of being imprisoned for his faith, in moments where he was literally on the verge of death, being beat to death, where there were times where he didn't even have a meal and he was hungry, he can say, in the deepest, darkest moments of my life, I found the secret. The secret is Jesus. Jesus in me brings satisfaction to my soul, which translates to every part of my life. And Jesus wants that in each one of us today. So Lord Jesus, we conclude today and we're going to move out from here into our normal rhythms of life and lord i pray in the midst of those rhythms of life your spirit would interrupt us and remind us again you are the one we need you are the ultimate thing not money not possessions but that as we go lord jesus we wouldn't go away crushed we wouldn't go away in pride but we would go in a sense that jesus you are the one that provides for us You are the one that brings us happiness. You are the one that brings us joy. And those things cannot be touched by external circumstances because they are something that goes beyond that because it's based on you, your death, your resurrection. You are the king of the kingdom and have all power and have all authority in our lives. So Jesus, today I pray, whether it's for the first time for some of us or maybe again for others, that we fully embrace and confess, Jesus, you are the Lord of all. You are the Lord over our bank account. You are the Lord over our job. You are the Lord over our life. And we surrender and submit ourselves fully to you so that we can experience true satisfaction in this life. And then we can experience the fullness of reward in the life to come. We thank you, Jesus, in your name.